Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is a faithful revelation to us of yourself. If we did not have this word, we would not know you. Oh, there would be things that we might know about you as we look at creation and as we mind our consciences. We would see the the glory and the majesty of your creation. We would see your creativity in your creation. We would, we would see your power that upholds and continues the creation. We would understand that there is a moral law. We might understand that, that we are not faithful to keep that moral law. We might understand even that that we struggle with righteousness, we might come to understand that we cannot be righteous. But Father, without this book that we hold in our hands, we could not know the fullness of who You are. We could not know the magnitude of Your righteousness. We could not know the magnitude of our sin. We could not know the wonder of Your salvation. We could not know how to be saved. We could not know how to walk in that salvation. Our lives are dependent on this book. Everything we need is in this book, and this book is a treasure to us because of that. So would you guide us this morning in considering the power of this word, the authority of this word, the revelation of this word, And might this word that we are about to hear be transformative to us. Father, might we not just worship in this hour, but might we worship in this week and in this year as as we heed what we hear from the pages of your inerrant, unchanging, faithful word. Would you guide us this morning? Would you give us hearts that are willing to be changed? And would you give me clarity and accuracy with what I say. I pray in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen. Pastor Matt Woodley tells the story about a softball game that he played in a number of years ago. He writes this, The umpire made a call that incensed our coach. My coach didn't agree with the ump's interpretation of a specific league rule. So the game stopped and a heated discussion began. Finally, the ump sighed and pulled a rule book from his back pocket, opened it, and read from page 27, paragraph 3B, section 1. And then he concluded by saying, As you can clearly see, this rule means that my call stands. Unconvinced, my coach yelled, But you're not interpreting the rule correctly! To which the umpire replied, Uh, excuse me, I think I should know. I wrote the rule book. After an awkward silence, my coach walked back to the bench, shaking his head and pointing at the umpire and said, Get a load of him. He wrote the rule book. Isn't that so like us? We are prone to dispute the rules of our lives and then argue against those who write them. 
Isn't that true spiritually as well? Maybe, maybe it is particularly true spiritually. Even when we have been saved from sin by Christ, and even when we love Christ, and even when we want to be obedient to Christ, we still have the flesh, and, and we still have remaining sin. And it is the continual, perpetual work of the flesh to push against God, to push against His Word, and to entice us to rebelliously sin. Our spirits, the the inner man, the the part of us that's inside of us that compels us to do things, we we want to obey. That We've been redeemed and, and we want to obey. We want to follow. We want to be loyal to God. We want to be loyal to Christ. And, and our flesh wants to destroy our loyalty to God and make us loyal only to ourselves. And so we have we have things outside of us the world and the devil, and we have things inside of us, the flesh, that are constantly enticing us to be disloyal to God and to be loyal only to ourselves. So the question is, is it possible to remain loyal to God? Is it possible to be faithful to God? Is it possible to resist the flesh? Oh, friend, yes, it is. And, and this psalm is filled with all kinds of truth that points us to the power of the Word of God to equip us to walk in faithfulness to God and in, in faithfulness to deny the power of the flesh. The Bible is authoritative to help the believer in his fight against sin. And in this stanza particularly, the psalmist explains our hope for our relationship to God and the Scriptures and sin in this way. Oh, there it is. When, he opposed, by sin, when opposed by sin and the world, he says, remain loyal to God. When, when opposed by sin and the world, remain loyal to God. And we will see in this passage three ways to maintain loyalty to God and His Word. So the psalmist calls us in this stanza to be loyal to God, but he doesn't just call us to be loyal to God. He gives us three means or three ways to maintain loyalty to God and His Word. The first is given to us in verses 113 to 115, and it is this. Be loyal to God by the way you fight sin. Be loyal to God by the way you fight sin. And in these, in these three opening verses to this stanza, we find the psalmist's commitment to the Word of God. These, these words reveal his mindset. This is what he's thinking. This is how he is preparing himself for the battle against sin and to fight against sin and pursue God. In fact, this, this stanza... Um, seems to anticipate our understanding of sanctification from the New Testament. So from the New Testament, we would say that in order to be sanctified, at a very simple level, man must put off sin. So we need to stop doing the things that lead us away from God. We need to put on righteousness. That, that is, there needs to be a righteous correspondent to that which we are putting off. And then we need to renew our minds so that we can put off sin and put on righteousness. So Put off, put on, and renew your mind. And, and we find all three of these components in this stanza. And the first of these is given to us in verses 13 to 15. It is the putting off component. It's, it's what we are stopping doing. It's, it's what we will no longer do. We are fighting against sin. We're stopping sin. How are we going to do that? Well, the psalmist gives us a number of ways to fight against sin 
He says, first of all, the first part of verse 113, fight sin by hating sinful hypocrisy. In, in the previous part of this, letter, uh, part of this psalm, the, the writer has pointed out various kinds of affliction that come to the psalmist. In fact, we, we even ra- uh, read it earlier in the previous stanza. Notice verse 107. He says, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Verse 109. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. That, that little phrase, my life is continually in my hand, meaning, meaning I, I, I feel like I'm about to die at any moment. There, there, there's oppression that's, that's coming against me and, and people are critical of me. People would even have my demise there wanting to pursue me with such vigor. We, we find similar kind of thing, for, for instance, in verse 22 and verse 23. Take away, he says, reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. So, so he's being reproached. He's, he's being contri- treated contemptuously. Even those who are in positions of authority and power, those who are rulers in that culture, they're working against him, talking against him, being critical of him. And so there's all this kind of affliction and persecution, even things that might hasten his death. And we see that all throughout these, uh, all throughout this particular psalm. But here, he's addressing something a little bit different. He's addressing a similar kind of thing that he's talked about in verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me. The wicked are enticing me. The, the wicked would have me to fall spiritually by, by going into some sin to destroy me. And we find the same thing here in this psalm. That, that thought radiates in this psalm, uh, this part of this, this stanza rather. Verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded. Verse 115, depart from me, evildoers. There, there are those who are double-minded and evil who would lead him astray and would seek his destruction, and he is fighting against them. This, this is his fight all through, throughout this stanza. How can he resist temptation? How can he resist enticement to those who would seek his spiritual destruction? And he begins by saying, verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded. Now, now my mother and probably your mother taught you as well to avoid the word hate. Um, so we should never say, Terry, that I hate green peas when we're at dinner. And, and it took some, some reinforcement of that principle over a period of time before I learned to stop saying I hate green peas. I still hate them, but I didn't say it at the table. Because... You know, hate's such a strong word. It's, it's, um, it's, it's such a definitive word. It's such a contrary word. But friends, there are times when it's good to use the word hate. And this is just one of those instances. In fact, the psalmist uses the word hate 41 times throughout the book of Psalms, and he uses it four times in this psalm. Three more times in this psalm, he will use this word. Consider verse 104. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Verse 128, therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Verse 163, I hate and despise 
falsehood. Now, if you're listening carefully, all three of those verses that I just read, he's talking about hating particular sin. So, I hate the sin. But in this verse, notice, he doesn't just hate the sin. I hate those who are double-minded. Here, he hates the deviant person. He hates, he hates the one who engages in sin. And, and friends, this is appropriate because God hates evil. And to hate evil and to hate evildoers is to put ourselves on the side of God and to think about life in the way that God thinks about life. To hate evil and to hate evildoers is to hate the actions of the people that God has rejected. And we'll see at the end of this stanza just how He has rejected them. It is to put ourselves, as one writer says, on the side of divine judgment. And notice notice what he says about the people that he particularly hates. He says, I hate those who are double-minded. That is, I hate the people who are inconsistent and divided and disunited and fickle. Uh, the, the New Testament uses the word lawless or against the law to speak of, of these people. So when, when the... I said the New Testament, I, I meant in the, in the Greek Old Testament. So when the translators took the Hebrew and they translated it into Greek, they used, instead of double-minded, they used the word lawless here. Those who are against the law, those who are opposed to the law. The, these people are prone to following the latest fad and the latest whim. They have no resolution to follow God. They're half-hearted. They know they should love God but they have no persistence in following Him, no resolution to follow Him. And remember what James says about those who are double-minded? He says the double-minded are unstable. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In fact, the word is is not just double-minded, but double-souled. It's as if he has two souls. He has, he has one soul in the world and he has one soul with God. He's, he's trying to live in the world and he's trying to live for God And that leaves him completely unstable. He cannot stand because he has his feet in two different worlds. Now when the psalmist says here, I hate those who are double-minded, our our propensity is to think, well, he, he hates other people. But think about it for just a moment. Who else do you know that's double-souled? I mean, you, you have people all around you in the culture that you look at and you say, you are messed up. That, that's, a, that's a technical biblical term. You're all sorts of messed up. It's clear. While you may be trying to do good things, you're in the world and you can't. But friends, it's not just people out there. Isn't it people in here, like in me? Is there, not, is there not a component in which all of us, while, while we don't have two souls, we have one redeemed soul, but because of the battle with the flesh, don't we have a propensity towards going two different directions? Don't we wrestle with those things? Don't we, don't we have struggles with duplicity and hypocrisy and Pharisaism? And when the psalmist says, I hate those who are double-minded. He doesn't just mean I hate those outside who are double-minded. He also seems to be inferring I hate my own wavering spirituality. I, I, want, I want the duplicity to be removed from my life as well. In fact, we, we get a sense that, 
that he's talking not just about others, but about himself as well because of his prayer request in verses 116 and 117 where he says, sustain me and uphold me. That is, I, I can't do this on my own. I, I have trouble. I'm, I'm constantly falling and I'm, I'm constantly struggling and I need your help, Lord. Well, friend, if we are, if we are going to be loyal to God and fight against sin. It starts by hating sinful hypocrisy and every manifestation of sin. It is appropriate to hate sin in our lives. The psalmist says in Psalm 97 verse 10, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. If you want to love the Lord, then you must hate evil. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 12 verse 9, Abhor what is evil despise what is evil, hate what is evil. Friend, let me just ask the question, do you hate sin? Or, or do, you, do you merely hate the consequences of sin? And, and you understand the difference, right? The, hating the consequences is, is, is to say, I don't like what happens to me when I sin, but the sin itself doesn't really bother me. Friend, if we're gonna, if we're gonna be loyal to God, if we're gonna follow hard after God, if we're gonna pursue God and godliness, then, then there can be no place for loving sin at any level in our lives. We, we have to hate the sin, despise the sin. Friend, do you hate sin? Or are you tolerant of sin in some of its forms in your life? You will fight sin by hating sinful hypocrisy, sinful hypocrisy in others, and in yourself. There's another means by fighting, of fighting sin, and it's given to us at the end of verse 113, and it is fight sin by loving God's Word, by loving God's Word. To facilitate his hatred of hypocrisy, the psalmist also recommits himself to love the Lord and to love His Word. So he says, I hate those who are double-minded, but in contrast, I love your law. And we find this pairing of hatred of one thing and love for another often in in uh, this particular psalm. We won't look at all the examples, but consider just, for instance, verses 158 and 159. I behold the treacherous... And I loathe them, 158, because they do not keep your word. I loathe, I despise those who are disobedient, rebellious to the word of God. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. So I hate sin and I hate the sinner and the one who will lead me astray. And at the same time, I love uh, the precepts, the commands of God. Verse 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. I embrace your law. Friend, we will learn to be resolute against sin when we cultivate a love for God's Word. You will, you will either be hating sin and loving God's Word, or you will be loving sin and hating God's Word. It is impossible to love God and love your sin at the same time. Those are in opposition to one another. And yet, that is our tendency. That is the tendency of the flesh, is is to go towards loving and embracing and cultivating and feeding our sin. Says Stephen Ewell, because of misplaced affections, we love what we ought to hate, and we hate what we ought to love.
Friend, wherever, wherever you and I are tolerating sin, wherever we're saying, it's really not that big a deal, it's really not that consequential. It's just a small thing. It's just, it's just an attitude that's in my mind. It's, yeah, it's not a true thing, but, and, but I haven't spoken it, and so it hasn't harmed anyone, friend. Wherever we are tolerating sin, we are despising God. You cannot tolerate sin and love God at the same time. Notice that the psalmist says his commitment is to love God's law. That that word um, law is the word Torah. And when we think of the word Torah, we typically think about the first five books of the Old Testament. But it means more than that. It, it represents all of Scripture. And particularly in this psalm, whenever he uses the word Torah, almost always he means all of Scripture, all of the totality of God's revealed word. And he says he loves all of it. He has affection for everything that has been revealed by God. He has desire for everything. There is no part of this that he doesn't want. He delights in all of it. He wants all of it, including the commands that God gives by which he might naturally be disinclined to follow. He wants it all. Says Kevin DeYoung in his book, Taking God at His Word, we should love what God loves and delight in whatever he says. God does not lay down arbitrary rules. He does not give orders so that we might be restricted and miserable. He never requires what is impure, unloving, or unwise. His demands are always noble, always just, always righteous. Oh, friend, you will do well in your fight against sin when you learn to cultivate a love for God and specifically for his word. So here's a question. How are you doing in your attempts to stimulate love for God's Word? I I crafted that question very carefully. How are you doing in your attempts to stimulate love for God's Word? I am not asking by that, how's your Bible reading going? You should be reading your Bible, but that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking the question, when you read your Bible, do you love what you read? Do you delight in what you read? Do you take in what you read and embrace it as as your life and your hope, your confidence, your joy? How are you doing in your attempts to stimulate your love for God's Word? How do do you do that? You may be saying, well, I'd, I'd love to do better, but I'm really struggling. Take some time. We won't look at. I'm going to look at a few verses, but we don't have time to look at all of it. But, but consider how this psalm writer uses the words love and delight in relation to the scriptures. And there are, there are, uh, I think about two dozen or more references in which he talks about loving the scriptures and finding joy and delight in the scriptures. And and those give us a hint as to how we are to think about. Um, God's Word and how we might stimulate joy in God's Word. Consider, for instance, verse 24. He says, Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. And so I think about God's Word and I'm, I'm led to delight in God's Word when I consider that this Word is God's counsel to me. It's not just, it's not just arbitrary laws. It's counsel that guides me to truth, that, that guides me to true living, that, that provides my very life. And when I see that that this is counsel that's good for me, then it provokes 
love for this word in me. Verse 47, I, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. I, I make a commitment to this word. I, I don't just say, well, uh, maybe I'll love it and maybe I won't. We'll see what happens. If, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do that, try, try that on your wife to, this afternoon, guys. And say, uh, say something like, well, I, I think I might love you. I think I might not. I'm not sure. We'll just kind of see how the rest of the day goes. Yeah. Not, not gonna work so well. Um, you might be might be enjoying some fellowship with the dog at, in your dog's uh, place of abode that night, right? What, when you say to your wife, "I love you," what are you saying? I am committed to you. And some days are hard, and some days are easy. But I want you to know, I am resolute in my commitment to be with you, to stay with you, and not waver. And that's what the psalmist is doing in in verse forty-seven. I am committed to this. I'm staying with this book. I'm staying with this truth. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He loves the law. And because he loves the law, he meditates on it all day long. It's, it's the thing that he contemplates and thinks about. But, but isn't it also true that because he contemplates it all day long, it also becomes a source of love for him? That's what he's thinking about. And because he's thinking about it, it becomes the object of his love. Verse um, 165. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. When I consider that when I love the word of God, it will produce peace in me and lead me away from stumbling, how can I not love it? It It is to my benefit. It is to my joy. It is to my good. Oh, friend, how are you doing in your attempts to stimulate your love for the Scriptures? You will fight sin best by loving God's Word most. There's another means that he gives us to fighting sin, and that is in verse 114. Fight sin by seeking protection in God's Word. where's, Where's your safe place? Where do you go for safety? Where do you, where do you go for protection? For some of you, it, it might be a tornado shelter, so you go underground and you, you go into a place where a tornado can't get you. Some of you, your safe place is the mall or the 2020 version of the mall, Amazon Prime. Or it's a TV show or a book or a magazine or it's a vacation or it's, um, it's a favorite food or a favorite drink. Where, where do you go when you want comfort, protection, safety? Even more specifically, where do you go when you want protection from sin? And again, the psalmist is addressing in this stanza that the enticements to sin, and he needs protection from sin. He needs protection from temptation to sin. He needs protection from sinners who will entice him and lead him astray. Where do you go for that kind of protection? Or, or do you even think about that? Is it even a consideration that I, I need protection from enticements to sin? Notice the psalmist, verse 114, he goes to the Lord. 114, you are my hiding place, you are my shield. The Lord was his refuge. The the Lord was his secret place to escape sin and its temptations. And, And along with that, the Lord is a shield to protect against the attacks of the enemy. So... So he is a safe place to go to, and in that safe place he also protects us 
with His Word. That's why He says, the end of verse 114, I wait for your word. I, I wait for your word to speak. I wait for your word to minister me. I, I trust your word. I patiently wait on you in your word. That doesn't mean that, that all the temptations and all the trials and all the enticements will, will leave him, will leave him alone. But, but when he is um, bombarded by temptation, he flees to God. He doesn't go to the sin. He runs to God and he runs to his word and he, he goes to the place where God's word will minister to him and direct him and provide him protection from his sin. He doesn't abandon God. He doesn't reject God when temptations increased. Increased temptations mean that he adheres to God all the more because God is his protection. As I was thinking about about God's protection and God being a shield, my, my mind um, went back to Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God. You, you know the passage. Verse 13, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now listen to the various kinds of armor and think about how many of those relate to God's Word and God's authority in His Word. Stand firm, therefore, verse 14, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Friends, repeatedly, he says, our armor, both protective and aggressive, is the Word of God. It's the truth. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that's contained in our salvation. It is, it is the word of God itself. This, this sword that we carry. This is our protection. This is, this is what will guard us and keep us safe. My friends, too often we live weakly and feebly because we take in the scriptures weakly and feebly. What has been written in many Bibles applies here. Sin will either keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. My friends, if we if we take in these scriptures and if we root ourselves in the scriptures, we will be kept and preserved from sin. Well, how do you how do you do that? Let me just give you give you one quick takeaway take from this. Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but on occasion I've been known to read my Bible and then close it and then as I go to pray, forget the particulars of what I've just read. Anybody else ever have that happen to them? Okay, like four of you, six of you. And um, so, so for those four or six of you, the rest of you can tune out for the next two minutes. Here's one thing I've, 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 I've done. Before, before I close the book and before I go to pray, I just say, okay, I've read... 50, 7,500 verses, whatever I've read that day. What is one verse that I can take with me for this day? And then from that verse, what is one thing that I can do? What's, what's one thing that I can believe? What's, what's one thing that I need to reshape my thinking about? What is, what is one thing I can do? What is one thing I can trust? 
And I, and I take that verse and I meditate on it and then I start thinking about what I, Terry, can do that day to apply that verse. And then, and then because the years are piling up and I don't always remember everything, write it down. Put it on your iPhone. Put it on your tablet. Put it on a three by five card. Pull it, put it in your pocket and then pull it out during the day and just remind yourself, what, what do I need to be doing today to find my protection and my safety in God and His Word. Be loyal to God by the way you fight against sin. The last thing He gives us in fighting against sin is given to us in verse 15. Fight sin by taking action against sin. In the first two verses here, the psalmist is is making a commitment. But verse 115, he's, he's moving beyond a commitment and he's actually taking action against sin. Because he's waiting for the Word of God, that's 114, and he hates evil doing, he is affirmatively and aggressively demanding that those who do evil leave him. Notice what he says, verse 115, Depart from me, evildoers. Leave me alone. Get out of here. Every once in a while, uh, Regina and I will be walking our dog. Actually, we'll be walking and she'll be taking her dog. But anyway, that's, that's a minor point. So we'll be walking the dog. And then another dog will, from the neighborhood that's gotten loose somewhere, kind of come up behind us and, and they'll start yapping at each other and getting a little aggressive. And I'll turn around and I'll say something like, Get! Get out of here, y'all! Y'all go away! Go on home! Get! That's what the psalmist is doing. Get! Get out of here. I have nothing to do with you. I don't want you. Leave. My friends, he's, he's being aggressive with those who will entice him to sin. He is getting them away from their influence. Not only is he sending them away, but it's also a tacit way of him saying, I'm getting out of here. I won't stay. I won't place myself underneath their authority and their influence. Why, why is he so resolute? so that I may observe the commandments of God. I have nothing more that I want to do than I want to be obedient to God, and these people won't help me do that. Get out of here. The psalmist is not waiting for sin to go away. He's taking action to get away from sin. Anybody ever had sin go away? Yeah, kind of doesn't do that. It's kind of like... In a couple of days, some of you are going to make some resolutions about losing 10 pounds next year. Anybody ever have it just kind of disappear magically? Yeah, me neither. You've got to take action, don't you? And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's taking action against sin. And particularly, he's paying attention to the relationships that will hinder his obedience to God. It's not just that he is avoiding the sin. He is avoiding those who will influence him to sin. And we talk about that with young people all the time, right? So, so um, Paul says to Timothy that, that we should, we should um, resist or flee from youthful lusts. There are lusts and desires that are particularly associated with youth, and we should avoid those things. And there, there are sins that are particularly relevant to the youth and young people. And, and that, that particularly relates as well to, to friends and relationships in our youth. But friends, we, we all need to be paying attention to who's speaking into our lives. Who has your ear? Who's, who's informing your mind and your conscience and speaking into you? And are they pointing you to Christ? 
Are they pointing you to God and His Word? Are you resolute in keeping ungodly influences, ungodly friends, ungodly newscasters, ungodly advertisements from speaking into your life and forming how you think about life? Friend, are you resolute in planning not to sin? Have you predecided what to do when you are tempted and how you will push it away and how you will flee from it? One commentator notes, holy men often find that in order to be holy, they have to be solitary. If you want to be holy, you will at times have to walk alone. And that's what the psalmist is preparing himself to do. He's, he's willing to go it alone and sending away those who are unrighteous. You will, I trust, in this room, not have to stand alone, but you go outside these walls and you stand for Christ and you're going you're gonna to find a lonely place. Are you willing to send away those who are unrighteous so that you might walk with Christ? If we will be loyal to God in this coming year, we will need to dissociate from sin and to dissociate from sin is to associate with God and be committed and loyal to Him. Will you cultivate loyalty this year to God by being disloyal to sin? You will do that as you immerse yourself in God's Word. There's a, a second way to be loyal to God in this stanza. It is given to us in verses 116 and 117. Be loyal to God by seeking His help and protection against sin. So he's put off sin. That's the first three verses. Now he's putting on a righteous replacement. And that putting that, that righteous replacement of sin is he is appealing to God for help. He's acknowledging in these verses he needs God's help. And, and he is, he is pleading with God and petitioning God and praying to God to help him. And he, he prays in two particular ways. The first part of verse 116 and then verse 117, he says, Ask God for help to maintain your spiritual life. Notice what he says, 116, Sustain me according to your word. That word sustain me means he's needy. It means he can't do it on his own. It means he's incapable of sustaining himself. And he needs God to sustain him. And the way that God will sustain him, verse 116, is according to your word. So God uses His Word to sustain and uphold the one who follows after Him. And the result is, notice the end of that line, that I may live. So when we find ourselves sustained by God and sustained by His Word, then that produces life, real living, real life. He asks a similar request in verse 117, Uphold me that I may be safe. So hold me up. And we're not quite sure the situation he's addressing, but but he's picturing something where he's either falling down or he is being overwhelmed, perhaps drowning underneath something. So he says, you need to hold me up. You either need to pick me up off the ground and hold me up and, and make me to stand, or you need to pull me up out of the surf and the things that are overwhelming me and get me up and out of the water so that I can survive. You, you need to hold me up. It is, it is his way to say only God can spiritually save him. The only safety for every, anyone 
is in the Scriptures. Notice what he says at the end of verse 117, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. This is his purpose. This is his goal. This is his desire. I want to have regard for your statutes. I, I want to obey the things that are binding in their forcefulness and in their permanence. That is the Scriptures. The, the Scriptures never waver, never change, never deviate. They are durable. They are eternal. And that's what I want to obey. And if I'm going to do that, You need to sustain me and you need to hold me up because I cannot do that on my own. This is is his way to say he wants God's help so that he can live God's way. Isn't Isn't this similar to the reminder that Jesus gave the disciples as he teaches them to pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If I'm going to walk away from temptation, I can't do it on my own. God has to provide the power, authority, and wisdom for me to walk away from temptation. Again, Jesus with the disciples, Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, He says, Keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So so there's a desire, but if you're going to follow through on that desire, you need... You need the help of heaven. You need God. You need Christ. You need the Spirit of God to be working in you to fight against sin. Friends, we must fight against sin, but we will never defeat sin in our own power. We can never do it on our own. We must depend on God. We must depend on His power. And that power is provided in this book. And it is accessed through prayer. Are we weak in our fight against sin? Because we have simply not accessed what God has provided. Remember, remember um, what what uh, Jesus' brother James says in chapter four of his epistle, verse two: "You do not have because you do not ask. You just haven't. You just haven't asked. I'd be happy to give you the provision, but you haven't asked." Remember, a number of years ago, twenty-five, twenty-eight years ago, I was having a conversation with my dad about some um, issues that Regine and I were wrestling through and just not sure what to do. And, and by the end of the conversation, he just kind of smiled at me and said, Terry, I can help you. You just haven't asked. You need to ask. And then I'm happy to help you. And isn't that the way we are sometimes with God? Well, here we are striding, s- struggling and striving and fighting against sin. And we're trying to do it all under our own power. F- friend, you can't do it. You won't make it. But if you ask, God in heaven will give you the Spirit of God so that you can fight the fight against sin and be faithful to Him. You don't ask because, or you don't have because you don't ask. Ask God and He will help you. He asks for another thing as well. Middle of verse 116. Ask God for help not to be ashamed of or to shame His Word. Notice what He says at the end of verse 116. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. That is, that is, um, don't let me be disappointed in my hope. That is, He, he has a hope. And what's, what's the hope of every follower of God? That God will redeem Him. That God will satisfy Him. That God will give Him all of the promises that God has promised to Him. And He says, I, I trust that you're going to do that. Don't leave me in a place where you are unfaithful to your promises. It's his way of simply saying, God, will you be faithful to that which I trust you to be faithful in? Will you save? Will you redeem? Will you keep those who are yours? 
But friend, it's not just that he's asking for God to be faithful to himself so that, so that God isn't shamed. So that, so that people don't say, well, well, look at your God. God, God promised this, but he hasn't given that. No. We can look at him and say, this is what he's promised and this is what he has granted to us. We can trust him. There's nothing to be ashamed of with God. He has followed through on his promises. But there's also a sense here, an inference, that the psalmist doesn't want to live in a way that will bring shame on the name of God. He doesn't want to bring, by his actions, disrepute to God and make others think that there's no hope to be found in God and his word. He doesn't want to live in such a way that he despises the name of God, that he shames the name of God through his actions. We can do things that discredit God and discredit his ability. And we don't want the pattern of our lives to be something that is shameful and will lead others to not believe. Christopher Ashe summarizes these two verses well. He says, These two verses are a prayer to be kept single-hearted, looking intently at God's statutes continually, which is a way of speaking of wholehearted attentiveness to the way and walk of the Word of God. He knows that perseverance is only by grace given in answer to prayer. He wants to be loyal to God. He knows he can't be loyal on his own, so he asks God, would you make me loyal? Would you keep me and preserve me? Is that, is that the way you pray? Is that your petition on a daily basis? Friend, if you want to be loyal to God, you're going to need His help. You're going to need His sustenance. You're going to need His provision. You can't on your own. But He can, through the Spirit of God, work that in you. Third way to be loyal to God, verses 118 to 120, be loyal to God by recognizing and fearing His wrath against sin. This is the mind renewal part. This is, we've put off sin. We've put on a, a righteous um, request of God, petitioning Him for help. And now we need to have our minds renewed. We need to think about life in a particular way. And He's going to identify two things that we need to think. Stimulate loyalty to God by remembering His judgment against sin. Verses 118-119. We, we need to remember certain things about God's judgment. We need to remember, first of all, verse 118, that unbelievers have no acceptance from God. Unbelievers, those who have rebelled against God, those who are engaging in sin, have no acceptance from God. Notice verse 118. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes. And when he says wander, don't think, well, they've just kind of... They've lost their compass. They've lost their moral compass. They've, they've lost their spiritual way. And, and they've just kind of slowly atrophied. They've slowly drifted. They've slowly wandered away from God. They didn't want to go, but they did. No, friend, that's not the meaning of the word. They have wandered because they, in, they have intended to wander. They, they have rejected God. They did not want His principles. They didn't want His truth. And they volitionally rebelled against Him. And it says that God has rejected those who have wandered away from Him. He has rejected them. He has thrown them away. He has spurned them. He has repudiated them. They are not accepted by God. They are not embraced by God. They will, in fact, be turned away from God, rejected by God, because, notice the end of that verse, they are deceitful. Their deceitfulness is useless. Everything they do is deceptive, and that deception only leads to uselessness. There is nothing that can commend them to God. They are uncommended to God, and He has rejected them entirely. They are not accepted. Verse 119, we also need to remember 
that unbelievers have no value before God. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. So, so like a metal worker that has heated up the metal so that he can get a pure metal and, and have the, the dross that he just kind of skims off the top and he's left with the purity of that metal. God has heated up their lives and he has removed the dross and he hasn't just removed a little bit of their lives. He has removed everything from their lives. Their lives are entirely wasted. There's nothing good in them. There is nothing righteous in them. Everything about their lives has been removed facing eternal wrath. And they will cease to exist on earth and exist only in God's infinite judgment. And and friends, we do well to remember that outside these walls, those are the people that are speaking into our lives. We need to look at those who are saying, click on this website have this attitude, cultivate these financial goals, Look, live for these kinds of things. These people, those people are headed for eternal wrath and eternal judgment. It's not something to be embraced. It's not, it's not a lifestyle that, that is amenable to us and acceptable to us. It is rejected by God. He will remove them in His judgment in totality. We, We need to remember that they have no acceptance before God. They have no value before God. They have no standing before God. That's verse 120. I'm afraid of all your judgments. That is, God will stand in infinite judgment against those who are rebellious against Him. No one can stand. No, no one, no one can can be right before God on his own. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that is your con- that is your condition, that is your state. You have no acceptance, you have no value, you have no standing. There is nothing redemptive in your life. There, there is nothing good in your life. God will judge it all. That's the bad news. The good news is Christ died to redeem you from that. You have no acceptance, you have no value, You have no standing, but Christ has acceptance with God. Christ has value before God, infinite and eternal value, and He has standing before God. And He will stand in your place if you will simply trust Him that when He died on the cross, He died for your sin so that you could live in obedience to Him. Friend, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, this is where you must go. This is what you must do. You must trust in Christ as your Savior. And friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, understand that's still true on your own. You have, you have no acceptance, you have no value, you have no standing, but because of Christ you do. And that ought to lead you to great worship of Him, which is where we need to go next. Verse 120, stimulate loyalty to God by cultivating a holy fear of Him Notice verse 120, my, my flesh trembles in fear of you. This is, this is the quivering of the skin. This is, this is goosebumps that send him into terror. I, I tremble in fear of you. I shake as I think about, as I think about your judgment and I'm afraid of your judgments. I'm, I'm fearful of what would happen if I would fall into the hands of an angry God. And yet, and yet there's no believer that needs to be fearful of those things. And so when the believer comes to God and says, I understand that God is a God of wrath and God is a God of judgment and I have been spared from that. That leads him to a different kind of fear, a reverential fear, a worshipful fear, a delighting fear, a fear that respects and delights in God. 
And that's where we need to go when we understand that God has poured out His wrath against all of our sin and redeemed us from that sin. My friend, you will, you will stimulate your loyalty to God by fearing Him and recognizing His wrath against sin. This morning we've considered the words of the psalmist about Scripture. Listen to the words of Solomon and his perspective on the wisdom of the Word from Proverbs chapter 4. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healthy to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You see, the the rule book that is given to us by God is not just a rule book, friend. It is a love letter. It is a love letter, as Solomon says, to, to produce transformation in our hearts, to produce life in us, to give us health. This is not something that God does in criticism of us, in, in rebuke of us. It is in joy that He gives it to us for our life. It's a love letter in every sense of the word. So as we head into this new year, how will we think about the Word of God and what will the Word of God do in us? Let me give you four summary questions for me about my loyalty to God and His Word. The first question is, am I committed to fight sin? That is, am I really being intentional to push against and resist my particular inclinations to sin? Have I identified where I am prone to sin? And am I taking actions against those temptations to sin? Have I, have I resisted so that, so that I am less inclined to sin in those particular areas? Am I resolved to fight those sins? Or am I tacitly making allowances and excuses for those sins? Am I committed to fight sin? Secondly, am I seeking God's help in my fight against sin? Have I asked Him for help? Is it part of my daily prayer to Him to seek His help? Am I concerned about being ashamed of His Word and bringing shame to Him because of my sin? Am I using the Scriptures that He has provided for me in my fight against sin? Or am I, am I trying to do it all on my own? It's a, it's a self-help improvement program. Or am I going to Him as the Christ improvement program, if you will. Am I consciously aware of His judgments? And do I righteously fear Him? Do I recognize that sin, the sin that I enjoy, the sin that I'm being attracted to, that very sin was the cause of Christ's death? Do I recognize that there are some who are already in hell and others who will be going to hell because they did not repent of the sin that I am now enticed to. The sin that I am being attracted by, the sin that I am wrestling with, is a sin that condemns. And do I recognize that? Do I fear God? Do I genuinely fear and respect Him enough to use His Word to resist and resist temptation to sin? Fourth question. Am I willing to let loyalty to God lead me to obey God. When opposed by sin in the world, my friends, be loyal to God. This year, let's be shaped particularly by this Word so that our loyalty to Him is unquestioned. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder 
of what you have provided for us and a reminder of your standard, a reminder of that to which we must commit ourselves. And Father, would you give us grace today, this week, this year, to identify our particular particular inclinations to sin and might we be resolute in fighting against them and might we be unwavering in our dependence on you. Father, would would this year not just be a year of fighting sin by the word, but might this be a year of fighting sin by prayer? Might we avail ourselves of that which you have provided for us through Christ and the Spirit that indwells us. And Father, might, might all these things lead us to a reverential fear and worship of you. And as we are transformed more and more into your likeness and the likeness of Christ our Savior, would, would we find delight in you and would we find worship of you and favor with you. We, Father, thank you for this word. Would you work it in our lives so that we might be loyal to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.